Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you that uh, you, you redeem us, but, but you don't just leave us. You redeem us and um, you show us who you desire for us to be in your son, Jesus Christ. And, and you actively, by your Holy Spirit, work in us to make us that. We thank you that you do not redeem us and leave us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that in this very moment, your Holy Spirit would be doing that same work. That as we listen to the word you have given us, as we consider it more intimately, your spirit would be making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And that you would be glorified in this moment and in our lives. And may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. At the risk of introducing conflict in your hearts and minds where there is none, I feel obligated to point out that James 2, 14 through 26 presents us with a problem that appears to contradict a truth at the heart of Christianity. Right? One of the most unique realities of Christianity when compared to every other world religion is that in Christianity, we do not act in order to be accepted. We are accepted and therefore we act. What I mean is that in every other religion, there's something one must do in order to receive the blessing of some deity or to achieve enlightenment. Right? There's, a, there's a standard, a, a protocol one must follow in, the, in, in their behavior that, that's a precursor to the desired relationship or outcome. However, in Christianity, that, that script is flipped. In the Bible, we're told that God loved us while we were still sinners. When we were dead, he made us alive. When we were strangers, he adopted us as his children. There's no good in us that preceded his acceptance of us. Instead, he provided the goodness necessary to forgive and to draw near to us. He provided Jesus, his son in the flesh. Christianity teaches that in his life and death, Jesus did for us what we were unable to do for ourselves, and God was was satisfied to receive his obedience and his death on our behalf. And Jesus accomplished all of these things for us so that God would accept us. And all that Jesus asks of us is to, to trust him. Right? Just put your hope, your faith in Jesus. He'll represent us if in faith we bind ourselves to him. Right? Through faith we are united to him, found in him, so that his victories become ours and we find ourselves accepted by the Father apart from anything good or wrong that we have done. The relationship begins at God's initiation alone. And so all of our actions are a response to this divine mercy and grace. Our behavior is positioned on the other side of acceptance. And because of that, our moral behavior is motivated by joy rather than fear. Failures do not spell condemnation because the relationship was never based on our performance in the first place. When we fail, we find grace. And it's this gracious love that then provides the motivation to please God 
by living a just and moral life according to his design. But our, our works are always a, a faithful response to the salvation that God has accomplished on our behalf through Jesus Christ. When we were dead, when we were sinners, when we were enemies and strangers. A simple way to say this is provided by Paul in Ephesians 2. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation through faith and not through works lies at the heart of the gospel. However, we get to James 2, 14 through 26, and we find James talking about the necessity of works for salvation. More than once, James states that faith without works is dead, and that faith without works is unable to save anyone. He even goes so far in verse 24 to say, you see that a person is, not, is, is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now here we appear to have a problem. For at first glance, James appears to contradict Paul in what is a a central reality of Christianity that makes it unique amongst all the world religions. It's because of this apparent contradiction that a man no less significant than Martin Luther dubbed James an epistle of straw that contains nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. The question for us this morning is, what should we make of this apparent contradiction? Was Martin Luther's assessment accurate? Should James be considered an epistle of straw that's subordinate to Paul, or can the two coexist? Right? Is James too a, a contradiction of the gospel, or is the contradiction only superficial? Right? The gospel, as it's articulated by Paul in places like Ephesians 2 and elsewhere, provides great humility and confidence to the one who believes it. Humility because we're saved by grace alone. Confidence because Jesus loved us despite our unworthiness. It's an incredible balance, right, that provides joy and courage and peace. But all of that is at stake the moment we're able to point to anything in ourselves as the reason why God loved us, right? Humility is replaced with pride. Confidence with insecurity, because what happens if we fail to do the work we claim initially attracted God to us? Will he abandon us in disappointment and anger? The stakes are high when assessing James's teaching on works, faith, and salvation. But as we hear James out, it becomes apparent that James and Paul aren't actually contradicting one another at all. The two of them are both talking about faith, but just different aspects of it. Paul spends most of his time talking about the initiation of faith in the life of a Christian, and he insists that it's, it's God alone who initiates faith apart from anything good or bad that we do. God gives faith as a gift. James doesn't disagree. But what James is most interested in talking about is the nature and integrity of the faith that God gives. The faith that God gives, if it's true faith, must issue forth in works. You might think of the difference between these two using the image of a fire. Paul emphasizes how the fire got started. It was God who lit a match underneath the cold, wet logs and caused a fire to grow. That fire we might call faith. James is interested in whether the fire is putting off any heat. 
for that's what will warm the cold soul huddled around its flickering flames. A fire that puts off only light but no flames is an illusion. It's no good, worthless, dead. James feels the same way about faith. A faith that has nothing to show for itself in the form of outward looks is an outward works is an illusion. It's no good, worthless, dead. Just as heat cannot be separated from fire, so James would say, works cannot be separate from faith. The works do not produce the faith, but they are proof and evidence of it. Works are a logical and necessary product of faith, just like heat is a logical and necessary product of fire. So James begins in verse 14 by asking, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? And the assumed answer is that it's, it's no good. Right? And James hints that the person who has no works to show for their faith but does not have true faith. He, he hints at this by pointing out that the workless person only says they have faith. They, they, they claim to it. They do not actually have it. They only claim to. The absence of works contradicts that claim. And so James asks at the end of verse 14, can faith save you? That's how it's translated in the NRSV, the, the translation we have here in our pews. But other translations better convey the meaning of James's question by making the question, can that faith save you? Right? Meaning the workless kind of faith. Is that kind of faith able to save you? Again, the presumed answer is no, because it's not true faith. True faith responds to the work of Christ on our behalf with work of its own. And this is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. After, after saying that we're saved by grace through faith alone, not as a result of works, Paul goes on to say that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here Paul is saying almost the exact same thing as James. We were created in Christ Jesus. He did the creation, but we were created for good works. Good works are the reason why God created us in Christ Jesus. Or to use James's imagery, good works are the reason why God gave us birth. God gave us birth so that we in turn might give birth to good works. Right? To say to the hungrier, the naked go and be well without feeding or clothing them is not a sign of true faith clothed in righteousness and virtue. Such faith is as naked as the person requesting the clothes. It's as empty as the person begging for food. For such faith denies them even a taste of the salvation that Jesus generally gives, generously gives to us when we beg of him. Right? When we come to Jesus requesting to be clothed, he clothes us with his righteousness. When we come to him requesting food and drink, he gives us his body a food that satisfies our souls. He gives us his blood, a well that will never run dry. See, through his redemption of us, Jesus has laid claim to us. He has the right to make demands on us. It's an uncomfortable truth that in various ways we object to and try to skirt. And in verses 18 and 19, James shines a light on, on two of those ways. In verse 18, James creates a, a hypothetical dialogue partner who says, you have faith and I have works. To which James responds, show me your faith apart from your works and I by my works will show you my faith. 
Now, the, the problem with this dialogue partner is that he says the opposite of what you might expect. And no one, including every single New Testament scholar, seems to know why. James is trying to prove that faith apart from works is useless. Any hypothetical dialogue partner he would create, you would expect to say, I have faith and you have works, as though he were defending his faith apart from his works. As I said, scholars try to, trying to make sense of this have offered every solution they can concoct, including the suggestion that James must have been distracted by a fly buzzing around his head and accidentally wrote the opposite of what he meant. I mean, it, it happens to the best of us. As a kid, I once became so distracted by a fly buzzing around me, I forgot to clean my room. <laughs> the best option of these created scenarios is that what's written is what James intended. Right? And the meaning of you have faith and I have works is that this hypothetical dialogue partner is putting forth the argument that there's, there's different ways of expressing faith. One person has faith that's expressed in, in quiet, restrained ways. Another person has faith that's expressed in, in outward actions. This person, therefore, is, is separating faith from works according to the to temperament and the personalities of peoples and traditions. Presbyterians have faith, Pentecostals have works. Introverts have faith, extroverts have works. But James insists that the, the two cannot be separated regardless of your personality or tradition. Works testify to the truth and presence of faith. While true faith issues forth in works like a bulb that pushes up a tulip from below the surface of the ground. Faith is a, a pregnant thing that gives birth to works pleasing to God in the life of everyone to whom God has given it as a gift, regardless of disposition or temperament. So that's verse 18, but in verse 19, we see another attempt to escape the demand of works flowing from faith. James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's easy to miss, but James here is addressing one person who would, the person who would claim the only thing God requires is accurate theological belief. God is one is an allusion to, to what one scholar calls the central defining teaching of both Judaism and Christianity in the context of the Greco-Roman world, the doctrine that there's only one true God. In a context where there was literally a pantheon of gods, the confession that God is one was incredibly distinct and important. James here is not downplaying the importance of accuracy in our theological belief, but to quote another scholar, believing that there is one God is different from believing in the God who is one. One is external assent, the other an embodied reception. James's rebuttal is that if your only concern is, the, is with the acquisition of accurate content, then you should know that even the demons know what's true. They too believe God's one. They even shudder at the knowledge. But the difference between demons and the children of God who possess true faith is that this knowledge finds a fertile home in the heart of Christians and gives birth to love for God and actions that please him. Christians take the knowledge that Father, Son, and Spirit are three persons and yet one God, and from this fact we find the motivation to pursue unity amongst the diverse peoples that don't look or sound like us. Christians know the unity and diversity of our triune God, and in this knowledge we find the design and inspiration for marriage, where a man and a woman become one flesh while still retaining their individual personhood 
following the lead of our triune God, we see that the healthiest marriages are the ones in which there's constant deference to the other so that a dynamic, of, dynamic dance of joy and love defines the relationship. If theological knowledge or the recitation of creeds do not issue forth an action, then James says in verse 20, such fruit is barren. And here he adds to the list of adjectives he uses to describe faith without works. Such faith is barren, dead, no good. And finally, he arrives at the extended examples of Abraham and Rahab to further solidify his point. In these stories, we get more of the same from James. Both Abraham and Rahab are justified by the works they did. Abraham offering up Isaac as a sacrifice and Rahab hiding the spies in Jericho. And here James is using justification in the sense that their works proved and pointed to a pre-existent faith that motivated their behavior. As the New Testament scholar Dan McCartney points out, for James, justify is a synonym, is a synonym not for save, I'm hungry. Let's start that again. As the New Testament scholar Dan McCartney points out, for James, justify is a synonym not for save, but for show or prove. All right, making this obvious, in Abraham's case at least, is James's reference to Genesis 15 in verse 23. In Genesis 15, Abraham was declared righteous on account of his faith. And it wasn't until several years later that Abraham then offered up Isaac as an offering. Right? The work that James here is, is praising is a, as a justification of Abraham. God declared Abraham righteous on account of his faith years before Abraham stacked the wood on his son's back and made the long, sober trip up Mount Moriah. Abraham's offering of Isaac, therefore, was not the occasion for the faith in him, but the product and evidence of it. And both of these stories, Abraham's and Rahab's, are, are told to demonstrate that a living faith issues forth in works. We heard earlier the story of Rahab, and she tells the spies, I've heard of the salvation of God. She references the Exodus. She knows God as Savior. It precedes her behavior in hiding the spies. Works prove and point to what is otherwise hidden in the heart. And the thing worth pointing out about both of these stories is the fact that faith comes to both Abraham and Rahab as a gift of grace and not as a wage that they have earned through good behavior. Rahab is introduced as a prostitute. And if Rahab's fault was that she was a prostitute, then Abraham's fault was that he was a pimp and a coward, right? For twice, he gave his own wife to other men to do with her what they pleased in order to save his own skin. Yet these are the type of people on whom God has mercy in order to draw them out of their sin and into the joy of his forgiveness and the service of his kingdom. We are no different. We are no different. God forbid it that my failures should be recorded for posterity's sake. Right? It'd be an ugly read indeed, and yet it would illuminate once again the nature of God's relationship with humanity. He redeems a people for himself according to his abundant grace and not according to anything in them, whether good or bad. And through the redeemed, through the good works that issue forth from their faith, 
He's making his love and grace known to the world. He's giving them confidence in their salvation. In the weeks to come, James will illustrate for us what he means by good works. There are numerous and diverse examples that he offers, which means that there are numerous and diverse ways for you to prove the integrity of the faith in you. There's one thing that's common in all of them, though, and that is that God gets to determine what we call good. He's the creator and designer of all things. He also purchased us. Uh, he also purchased us for himself through the blood of his son. He therefore gets to make demands on us according to a wisdom that only he possesses. We do not get to determine what is good and right through our feelings or desires. If you're going to follow God, then you must recognize that sacrifice is necessary. Sacrifice is good in God's eyes. It was necessary to redeem humanity. It's now necessary for humanity to follow Christ. Submission to his design is good in his eyes. God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. But what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can such faith save you? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.